Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. If you hear some noise in the background, let me tell you what that is. It's an Indianapolis power and light truck right outside of my window installing a new electrical pole. I've had unbelievable amounts of construction going on around my office lately, and so hopefully this doesn't get in. I'm going to try to do apply the noise reduction, and uh, we'll just see what my mic picks up anyway. But if there's some noise in the background, that's what that is. Also, I wanted to let you know that next week, there will not be a podcast episode. I'm going to be on vacation. I think this will be the first week since I started the podcast that I didn't put out an, an issue, but I actually haven't taken like a real vacation in years, and I decided to take a week off this year and do it. Going to be heading out east, visiting New York, uh, going up to New England, various places like that. So I'll see you in a couple weeks. I also wanted to relay some interesting perspectives that I got from a listener who emailed me after my podcast on succession planning. And what he basically said in his observations, and he gave a ton of examples, is succession usually goes best if there's an interim pastor who is in place for at least a year. And the examples he had had an interim for a year to even three years before calling a new sort of permanent minister. And so this would be like a little bit of a weird, um, I shouldn't say weird, a different way to do an interim. I, I talked about an official interim versus an unofficial interim. But what I thought of as an official interim is sort of like the old guy resigns, you just have this kind of caretaker until you put somebody else in the slot. Uh, but there is often a case in which there really is a true interim, someone who's there for an extended period of time. He's really the pastor, but it's known that he's not going to be the guy that gets the call. So, so this guy, who again went through a lot of examples I'm not going to share here, said it tends to go best if you have an interim in place for a year after replacing a longtime pastor. He said, for one thing, the congregation just gets used to having someone else in the pulpit for a while. It gives them a chance to disconnect from the old guy uh, before the new guy comes in. So I thought that was sort of an interesting perspective on it. Uh, something to think about. It'd be interesting. If you know churches that have gone through a succession, look at what happened and look at the model they used and uh, see what patterns you can you can come up with. Also, there was an interesting Substack newsletter from a guy named Freddie DeBoer. I'm not sure if it's actually how you pronounce his name. It's D-E-B-O-E-R. Uh, you know, he's got one of the more popular Substacks out there. And he was talking uh, about uh, how who will tell them the things they don't want to hear? And it's basically about how the New York Times has essentially become captive to its affluent global city, highly progressive subscriber base. As they moved away from the traditional ad-supported model to a digital subscription-based model where much, much more of their revenue comes from subscribers and how they massively grew that during the, the Trump era by catering to the never Trump sort of crowds, um, you know, now they've essentially become captive to that. And if they publish something, the Tom Cotton, uh, Senator Tom Cotton op-ed would be a good example of that, that offends their readership, it creates a massive firestorm. And so essentially, they almost can't go against their, um, their readers. I thought that was a really interesting insight. And it's somewhat true, you know, the old model of journalism, where you had the advertisers and 
the editorial, and there really wasn't going back and forth. And you had like big companies, local companies paying for ads, but there was rigorous separation between business and editorial. That actually was an era that produced a pretty good model of journalism. And as that went away for a variety of reasons, the advertising, of course, going away being, being the main one, the models that have replaced it have not been as good at producing genuinely independent journalism. So, for example, a lot of newspapers are now turning to foundations to fund some of their reporting. Well, foundations have an agenda. And just because it's a blue-chip foundation doesn't mean they don't have an agenda. Of course, who's funding something matters. And so when there's a specific funder funding a specific project, you can be sure that specific project aligns with what the funder wants. You can't go against the funder. And it's the same thing as you acquire, you know, Substack subscribers, for example, or New York Times subscribers, it becomes very difficult to go against them if you want to, you know, keep your subscribers, keep the revenue flowing in. And so I've thought about that in terms of my own model here. And I've got this idea, and that was something I just tweeted. I said, if if you are not saying things that, you know, periodically offend your readership, defend your models, when you have an individual subscriber-based um, financial model, you are going to become a prisoner of your own reader base. And so that's something to keep out. So somebody tweeted in reply, it was a a line for a quip from uh, Charles Peggy, the French uh, philosopher that, you know, every journal should offend 20% of its audience with each issue, but it should just be a different 20% each week. And I think there's something to that. I want to be sure as I'm saying this, although it's not a subscriber model per se, that I'm not just telling you all what you want to hear so that I accumulate more people who want to hear that. And then all of a sudden I can't go against anybody. I want to be saying things that periodically you do not agree with. Now, would I expect you to continue to read me if, you know, half or more of what I'm saying is stuff that you just totally think is crazy? Of course not. I'd expect you to drop off, go read something else, go listen to something else. But I want to maintain the ability to speak with intellectual integrity. And one way I want to do that is by, you know, periodically making sure I'm saying things that that people don't like. And I got to ask myself, man, if I don't get some pushback from people, am I maybe making a mistake of just being too conventional wisdom or too uh, just giving people what they want to hear? And it's interesting, as I was tweeting that, uh, you know, I made some tweets about, uh, you know, Biden's pullout of Afghanistan. And I don't want to get into big politics there. And obviously, it's kind of been a debacle. But I'm like, hey, I think getting out of uh, Afghanistan was the right thing to do. He made the tough call. He stood behind it in his speech, et cetera. Well, then the tweets start rolling in. I start getting pounded and pounded, clearly from a lot of people who are who are listeners of this podcast or the newsletter, and they're, they're, you're crazy. You need to change the name of your podcast. You know, can't call it the mask. You know, that's what's with this feminine take, all this stuff. And, hey, that's great because it's Twitter, right? This is Twitter. Twitter is the fray. And so if you can't take blowback from a tweet, uh, and again, I'm talking about ordinary blowback like this. I mean, obviously, if there's a massive media dog pile, that's going to suck for anybody. But you can't take the blowback. You can't have it. So I'm glad that I actually said something that got people a little fired up because I don't want people to to just agree with what I say all the time. And so, yeah, you're probably more likely to, to see disagreement on Twitter because obviously Twitter is a more edgy platform. And 
in this sort of uh, format, in the newsletter especially, I really try to go through and explain why. So even if you don't agree, hopefully you'll say, yeah, this was well thought out. This was et cetera. And of course, you know, then you get to the the podcast, which is, again, it's talk radio genre. Obviously, it's going to be a little more, hey, this is, uh, you know, less deeply thoughtful, you know, detailed, you know, many thousands of words of explanation. And then you get to Twitter, it's sort of like you're just firing off your opinion. So because it's, the, the genres are different, right? It's like the difference between the peer-reviewed article, you know, versus the magazine feature essay versus the 700-word op-ed versus the tweet, right? You just have different levels and you can't really explain all your rationales, even if even if it's right, right? You're just an equip. So keep that in mind. I, I, I want occasionally for you all to think, man, I just don't agree with what that guy's saying. Now, I don't want that again. I don't want that to be every time, uh, but I want to be able to, to say things and have an audience where people are used to the fact that you're, I'm going to say things that occasionally you're just not going to agree with, but hopefully I say many things you do agree with. And again, I would expect if I'm saying a lot of stuff, mostly stuff you don't agree with, that you're probably going to move on to greener pastures, as it were. Now, this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast. A lot of people have been asking me to comment on that, and I have been listening to it, and I have been taking a little bit of notes. Actually, I kind of, in retrospect, wish I'd taken more detailed notes. I didn't really know how many episodes were going to be in it. I still don't know. They're up to seven episodes, and it doesn't sound like they're done. They mentioned that there was a bonus episode about Joshua Harris next week, and yet I don't think that's, that means it's the end. It, it still seems like there's a lot more to come. And if somebody knows exactly how many episodes there's going to be, um, let me know. They are sort of creating episodes as they go along. And a good friend of mine made this insightful comment. He says, the temptation that you run into when you've got something that's going well is you milk it too long, right? You it you goes on too long. And in fact, my my wife who listens to a lot of podcasts. Certainly used to listen to more than she did today, but she loves podcasts. She said the best podcasts are when they do like a season and release the whole thing at once, because then you get the really tight story arc. It's all there. There's no temptation to drag it out. So I'm not saying they're going to fall prey to the temptation to drag it out. I don't think it's gone on too long by any means, but it, it is kind of getting up there in episodes. You got seven hours worth of stuff. And I'm like, man, by the time I get to the end of this thing, my notes aren't going to be fresh. It's going to be hard for me to give the details. So maybe every week I should have been doing a, a special commentary on the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast podcast every single week, but I didn't. Uh, but, but since we're going on so long with this, I, I would just share a, a couple of preliminary thoughts about it and then maybe I'll come back and share some more detailed thoughts at a future time and like a lot of other people I think this is an extremely well done podcast I mean they've gotten great stuff about how Marcel was founded they put it in a lot of interesting context it's well produced it's just really a great podcast and that's in that regard and, you know, it got started and immediately started spreading like wildfire, like, wow, this is interesting. So they picked a compelling topic and they've really done, I think, a a good job with the technology. So it's a very good podcast. It's once a week for an hour, basically. And I would definitely encourage you to listen to it because, you know, Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll is such an important case study in the modern evangelical world. Now, as they've gone through... Some of the later episodes have been a little bit weaker than some of the beginning ones. And, you know, there's been some people on uh, Twitter uh, quipping, you know, I should have done a podcast called The Rise and Fall and of the Rise and Fall of Marcel podcast. 
But I think that really overstates it. Um, I mean, there were a couple of things that I'm like, eh, you know, this and that. But it would be very easy to just kind of nitpick them and say, wow, these guys are missing this or missing that. And so, for example, I will give you a couple things. You know, in their article and sort of his uh, his gender theology, they brought in people like Kristen Dumay, who wrote Jesus and John Wayne, to criticize him. And, you know, later on, they brought in Joshua Harris. So these are not the people you would bring in to say, we want to have, like, you know, a really serious kind of, you know, in-depth discussion of his thing, unless you were doing some sort of point-counterpoint. We got somebody on this side, somebody on that side. So in essence, they brought in people with an axe to grind, including one guy who's abandoned the faith. It's, it's really weird why they would have Joshua Harris on there, particularly since he's now flogging this essentially $275 how to deconstruct your faith course or something like that. So I think little things like that, yeah, they, they kind of decredentialize a little bit, quite frankly. Um, you know, I can say, well, you should have got this guy, this guy. But I think on the whole, right, you're trying to pick apart some of these things, but at the end of the day, it's just really well done. And, you know, I thought the latest episode on governance was very good. There's a lot of very interesting stuff in it. And, you know, I would prefer to concentrate on the excellence that it's bringing to bear rather than kind of the, the more nitpickier stuff around the edges. And I think one of the uh, big complaints people are having about this Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast is that they're essentially, you know, so stand to date, it's a very feminist publication, and they're essentially trying to impugn complementarianism and all of this stuff by, you know, associating Mark Driscoll with that and trying to basically tar everybody else by association with Mark, uh, with, uh, Mark Driscoll. And they're like, well, you know, Mark Driscoll kind of stands on his own. It doesn't tarnish the, the, the rest of the movement. Well, you know what I'd say? He does tarnish the rest of the movement. I mean, this is one, baby. I'm probably going to make some people mad here. Mark Driscoll is an indictment of the complementarian movement in, you know, at least some sense of the word. I mean, here's a guy, John Piper, who was, you know, essentially the co-creator of complementarianism, was one of the prime platformers of Mark Driscoll. And even after Mark Driscoll had this terrible fall, he basically said, yeah, you know, I'm kind of sorry all that bad stuff happened, but, you know, I really don't regret it. I, I you know, he basically said, I, I did the right thing platforming this guy. It's, it's crazy. And again, you should look up, you know, John Piper's exact statement on that, you know, in order to get the nuance, you know, oh, you don't say, Aaron, you're saying John, Mark, John Piper said this. Look it up for yourself. It's online. It's like, I don't, that's not, not right. This guy did, the co-creator of complementarianism, did play a key role in building up Mark Driscoll, as did Tim Keller, Don Carson, and the Gospel Coalition. He was a founding council member, I believe, of the Gospel Coalition. So the most exclusive club right, of conservative evangelicalism, these new Calvinist elites to whom complementarianism is one of their distinctives, brought him into the inner circle. And without the kind of imprimatur of these people, Driscoll would not have gotten away with everything that he got away with for as long as he did. And early on in the masculinist, I think it's masculinist number seven, but I will put a link to it in the show notes. It was called Accountability for Failure. And I talked about Joshua Harris, and I talked about Mark Driscoll, and I, you know, I said, look, the purity culture movement, Joshua Harris, that thing is now kind of recognized as a failure, and yet where's the accountability? Where's the accountability? 
And the same thing is kind of true of Mark Driscoll. It's like Mark Driscoll is now gone, disgraced, but there hasn't been any accountability. And when I say accountability, what I'm not talking about is let's go out there and make all these people fall on their swords. I'm talking about let's just ask ourselves, how did this happen? Where did we go wrong? And what changes can we put into place to make sure that it does not happen again? In the evangelical world, there is extraordinarily little accountability for the people who, you know, kind of are, you know, instrumental in platforming some of these guys who've blown up big. And so, yeah, I think when the complementary guardians of complementarianism, the co-founder of complementarianism, bring a guy like Mark Driscoll into the inner circle, when they put their seal of approval on him, when they, when they, you know, you know, platform him, that does implicate them. It does implicate the complementarian movement when that guy blows up. And so you would certainly look at it as, hey, how do we make sure something like that doesn't happen again? How can we have sort of a post-mortem and some accounting? And I don't really see that that's happened. Again, I don't think it's the issue that something had to blow up. I mean, the truth is any sizable organization that's been around for any length of time has had some sort of a personnel scandal, some sort of, that's just, that's just reality, right? As Christians, we know there's sin, people sin, and we should just expect that. So it shouldn't come as a huge surprise when even pastors fall, because that is just the nature of the beast. The question is, what are we doing to try to avoid that, to try to learn the lessons, etc.? And I do think even in this whole podcast series, this Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, there is a sense in which the blame is sort of all on Mark Driscoll. He is the scapegoat in the same way that Joshua Harris is the scapegoat. You know, Joshua Harris was 21 years old when he wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Purity culture, he didn't create it. He was more a product of it than the creator of it. So letting him become essentially the fall guy or the, the scapegoat for that is something there. And so there have been, I mean, if you look at the Gospel Coalition, for example, there have been a number of high-profile blowups. So James McDonald blew up. Joshua Harris was on the council there. Uh, there are some others whose situations I'm not as familiar with, so I don't want to mention it. And then I just learned within the last two weeks that a guy who was a Gospel Coalition council member and board of directors member, right, so even the inner inner circle from a year ago was defrocked over what appears to have been some sort of a financial impropriety. And, I mean, this is a guy I actually knew personally, so I... To say that I knew him, I met him two or three times. And to be honest, I was shocked because this is a guy that I would have said, this is one of the good guys. If there's one of the good guys, this is a guy who's one of the good guys. And then, you know, again, he he had some kind of a fall. I don't know what it is. I found a statement on his church announcing his resignation and sort of talking about the situation obliquely. You know, but with the Gospel Coalition, he just disappeared right off the board of the council. There's never been even a single thing written about it. Right? When, you're, when you have a board member who's defrocked from the ministry and just sort of disappears like airbrushed out of the Politburo photo, you know, there's something a little off about that. There's something a little off about that. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Hey, Aaron, you know, there's this article. We said this, we said that. Possibly I'm off. I did, again, I did a Google search on the guy's name, every article on gospelcoalition.org within the last year, nothing came back. Again, maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I want to correct the record. And, you know, I do think there's a sense of what should you say? I'm not saying you need to make a big public spectacle out of it. How you handle these situations, you know, the reality is, you know, it, it's delicate. I'm not saying that 
you know, necessarily have to make a big scene about it or something. I, you know, maybe you didn't have to, but like, I do think there's just something, it just, just kind of disappears. People just kind of disappear. And, you know, what's going on with that? And so I do think there's this element of the new Calvinist world, the complementarian world has still not come to grips with the realities of Mark Driscoll and how that happened. And again, I have got some substantive critiques of the complementarian movement myself. I look at this and I say, yeah, what this is telling us, there actually are problems in this in this movement. So one of the things that I you know I talked about was, uh, for example, the servant leader concept and the way that they define it, and basically sort of telling you that you know godliness is sexy and all of that stuff. It's, it's not true. So I've made a few critiques. I really don't want to get in, you know get down too much in the weeds of that today. Uh, but I do think there's some issues, and I think this idea that you know complementarianism somehow represents you know the Danvers statement is like the third table, you know that Moses brought down off of you know off the mountaintop or something. I just don't think that's the case. I think there are some there are some issues in there. So I think yes, Christianity Day is very feminist. Yes, they're kind of coming after you know the complementarians on this. Yes, maybe they did it in a few ways that are a little unfair. Um, yeah, I have. There is one substantive thing that I think on that. I'm gonna I'm gonna review it. I'm gonna go back and re-review it and check in on it, make sure it's what I thought, and then I'll I'll talk about it in a future podcast. And, and you know, at the end of the day, though, this is like the perfect opportunity for them to do it because Mark Driscoll definitely like was a guy with like flashing red lights all all over him, and he was doing stuff long before he actually blew up. People knew stuff. Uh, was going on. And so I think we do have to take stock. I think we do have to ask about this. You know, I do think, you know, a guy like John Piper should be a little more contrite about the fact that he essentially put his personal seal of approval on Mark Driscoll when he should not have been. And so I think that's one. I think there's this natural instinct. Let's circle the wagons. Let's sort of, uh, just like politics, let's, you know, let's defend our guy when the other guys are coming after him. But I do think we had to ask ourselves in this time, hey, Where's the log we got to take out of our own eye on this stuff? Because there really was. I think Driscoll really is more tightly connected to the core networks of complementarianism than uh, people might like to think today. The other thing I've noticed, I sort of alluded to this in a previous podcast, is, you know, the people who are on the inside at Mars Hill really have a you know, I think to a great extent, pointed the finger at uh, Driscoll and trying to put all the blame on him. And I, I would say that's one of the themes I take away from this podcast. Again, I'd have to go through and really do a detailed listen to to get it 100%, you know, to do one of my, hundred, you know, classic, here's the Aaron 20 to 40,000 word analysis of this. And I could do that, but it's, it's just not worth it. But the impression I get is essentially Mark Driscoll is the bad guy. And other people who were involved simply got caught up in it, simply got caught up in it. Anyway, and I think there's something to that. I think there's something to that. And one of the things that I think that this podcast does a great job of is talking about all the good things that came out of Mars Hill and how the church was initially very different. I know people uh, on my list who were at Mars Hill, um, you know, even on staff at Mars Hill, and they talk about, you know, the good things that came out of it. And so I think they've actually done a very good job of trying to tell the positive stories of Mars Hill. And it is a case in which, yeah, people got caught up in that and things started changing 
and people didn't fully pick up on the fact that it was changing. So there's a lot of that. And so there's a lesson to be taken from that. I think that we can get caught up in stuff that is good in a lot of ways, but bad in other ways. And maybe it's changing and going in different directions. So the answer is like, how do we get caught up in this? How do we get caught up in this? And I think there's a tremendous reticence to do that. And I, um, you know, the, the members of the church, you know, I don't really have anything to say about them because I, I don't know too much about what's going on with the members, but some of these elders, it struck me immediately, like I was watching this kind of all go down in real time when Mark, the ministry was kind of blowing up there. And all of a sudden I saw these elders and people coming out of the woodwork, castigating him. And again, some of them, you know, were kind of doing almost like I need to publicly repent of all this, but I'm like, where were you a year ago? So there were these couple of people, the latest uh, episode, State of Emergencies, about governance changes at Mars Hill. And there were a couple of guys that stood up and said, these changes in the bylaws ain't right. And they basically got fired, kicked off, disciplined, etc. in a very unfair process. I'm like, those are people who stood up. And the other people, like this is the way in that episode that they described them. One person says, I was so naive about power dynamics. This is a guy who voted to fire the two people who were stood up. Uh, the elders said, or the, excuse me, the narrator said, as for the rest of the elders, they were caught up in it. A commenter says, I guess they didn't see what the repercussions of that would be long term. So there's sort of this sense of, yeah, we were a little bit innocent. We were a little bit there. And I think realistically, actually, no, you were complicit in something that just, you know, ended up trashing, you know, the reputations, probably harmed. These two men and their families were shunned, or at least one of them was shunned. Like, think about their wives, their kids, who lost relationships. That was a very serious thing. And there was this idea that, like, right after kind of Mark resigned, these 18 elders issued an apology letter. Well, where was the apology before Mark resigned? You know, there was this, there was a long period of time between this vote and when Mark Driscoll's ministry blew up, I think it was several years. I think it was like 2017 to like 2013 or 14. Nowhere along this process did not some people stand up and blow the whistle and get out of it. It was kind of only when the thing blew up that people start, you know, telling you, oh, yeah, I got, you know, I made a mistake. Yeah, you, you did. Now it's almost like, you know, it's kind of like CYA. I mean, that's what it comes across as. And again, now that I'm seeing... I mentioned the, that, you know, these 21 elders or whoever, former elders, had written an art, uh, open letter saying that Mark should not be in ministry at his new church in Phoenix. Well, maybe he shouldn't be, but the timing is curious. Again, that church has been going on for a while, and now you've got this big hot podcast. And so I do think there is a sense in which the people around, it's not just Mark, who has not fully taken stock of what he did wrong, which, of course, no evidence he thinks he did anything wrong, uh, but... The people around him, I think, the question is, how do we how do we get caught up in this stuff? Because it's, it's such a relevant question for all of us. And one of the things that's going on right now, we're in this kind of like politically disintegrating landscape, for example. And we're like, who do we go to? Do we get on do we get on board with Trump? Or do we reject Trump? Or do we do this or do we do that? And you know, we make these decisions in an imperfect world with imperfect people. And again, if you look back you know, throughout history, people end up supporting like bad characters. I think, you know, Mark Driscoll, I end up getting caught up and backing this guy who turned out to be a complete, you know, dud, you know, in a sense. And there are certainly worse situations than that. And it's very easy to say, well, you know, anybody could have got caught up in it. 
I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is, how do we not get caught up in it? And I think about that every day, right? I think about that every day because there aren't any people out there who are exactly what I would want. And I got to sort of make some decisions about what I want to do and who I want to partner with. And one of the things that I give the new Calvinist movement enormous credit for is they recognized that by putting aside some differences amongst themselves on things like baptism, on charismatic gifts, different stuff, they could create an organization with immense power and immense influence, that it would create synergies and force multiplication for this new Calvinist movement. And their strategic ability to create these organizations, extremely powerful. If you look at sort of the, called the right-wing critics of new Calvinism, one of the things you notice is none of them have ever been able to put aside their differences in order to really create sort of a cross-ecosystem network. And so... Yes, you know, they will go on each other's shows occasionally. Or at least. I'm not saying they, they have nothing to do with each other. They do. But there's never been a creation, uh, a gospel coalition, like unifying network of these people. They tend to kind of have their own ecosystems. For the most part, I got this ecosystem here, this ecosystem there. You know, I have my own ecosystem, <laughs> you know, essentially. Right? So I'm not, I'm not putting myself, you know, in a different category. I'm looking at myself and saying, yeah, wow. If I were able to strategically partner with other people with whom I have some material differences, that would create a much, much more powerful network. And that is exactly what the Gospel Coalition was able to accomplish. You take these people who, like Mark Driscoll, like John Piper, like Tim Keller, like James McDonald, like, you know, D.A. Carson, these people are very, very, very different from each other. And yet they were kind of able to you know, submerge those differences in order to come together into a network of extraordinary power. And so I think that's a lesson right there. The challenge is when you do that, at what point do you lose the ability to essentially have some sort of discipline or some sort of accountability in that? And so, I, you know, I think about that a lot. You know, do you, do you, do you want to stay like, I, I, I'll keep myself, uh, you know, pure here, by just kind of floating above the fray. Now, that may be like the David French approach. I just am not going to sully myself with any of these dirty techniques. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, just try to be my, my pure self here. And, you know, maybe you could say, hey, Aaron, that is what you're doing, right? You've got your own little newsletter, your own little platforms. Everything is about you. Everything is about, you know, your independence, your this and that. I mean, I could make that critique about myself. And so that's limiting. But then, you know, you get in bed with a bunch of other people to create these, these things. And then it's like, oh, one of them blows up or one of them starts going off the rails, well, how do we have discipline? How do we have a process? And so in these human relationships, in human organizations, it's always messy. And again, I think the thing with Mark Driscoll, again, the, the idea is not to find out who else do we need to trash and destroy, uh, you know, in order to make them take the responsibility for Mark Driscoll. It really is a point and say, hey, wow, what is my level of responsibility in that? And how did I get so caught up in it? And by the way, what am I going to change? What am I going to do a little bit differently? How am I going to respond in these situations in the future? How can I get a little better? How can we as the church not have another purity culture situation develop? How can we avoid having another Mars Hill? What could we have done differently? I think those are the sorts of things we need to ask. So 
I would just say rather than looking at maybe what bits and pieces here and there Christianity Today may have done, it's a little unfair in the way they went after Mark Driscoll, I think we should, the best thing we should say, well, what was fair? You know, and how do we respond to that? And again, I watched probably 100 Mark Driscoll sermons. I was an avid consumer of his stuff online. You know, I I had my, you know, quibbles with him here and there, but like, yeah, why was I so interested in Mark Driscoll? Why was I so into him? And, you know, one of the things that happened, it really wasn't related to his blow up is, you know, when I sort of refactored what I was doing and said, wait a minute, there's a lot of stuff here that ain't right and kind of went off and that ultimately led to creating the masculine. So I did go through a little bit of that process. But it is very easy to see because I personally found myself eagerly awaiting on Sunday for the next high definition uh, video to drop of Mark. And so we all need to be asking ourselves that question and thinking about it for our organizations uh, because we really need to figure out to the greatest extent possible, right, how to create a leadership culture that is above reproach. Again, we know that this is human reality. We live in a fallen world with sinful people. There's going to be sin. How do we respond to it? How do we be on the watch to it? But how do we always try to be elevating our game and getting things more right? So I'll just leave it at that. That's something to think about, ruminate over for the next week or two uh, until I'm back with another podcast after my vacation. Again, thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you soon.